Three Strands is growing, and our ministries are doing big things for Jesus. If you're looking for a way to get plugged into what we're doing, visit us at threestrands.church. We're in part three of our series, What Are You Afraid Of? And today we're going to tackle the fear of failure. Now that's a little bit different than uh, what we talked about last week, the fear of rejection. Um, Rejection has more to do with how people react to us. Failure, what we're talking about today, has more to do with meeting the standards that you and I set for ourselves. And it comes from this false belief that we must meet certain criteria in order to feel good about ourselves. But you know, some people never fear fear failure. They just don't. And it's not because they're always successful, but because their standards are so low and they just don't care, you know. Um, It's been said that it's not failure, but low aim, that's the crime. We're more likely to fear failure if we're very competitive or we set very high standards or we're a perfectionist with big ideas or if uh, you've experienced a devastating failure in the past and now you're afraid of repeating that hurt. The fear of failure can have some terrible consequences in our everyday lives if we let it. For one thing, it quenches vision. We try only the things that we know that we will succeed in, and we avoid anything um, where the risk of failure may be too great. Fear of failure limits friendships. We avoid people who, uh, by their success or their disapproval, make us feel like a failure. Maybe no doing of their own. We only spend time with people who are not a threat to us. Fear also erodes our faith. We, we don't experience the, the spiritual maturity of having to really depend on God to help us achieve big goals. You know, we, we should be praying for things so big that if God doesn't do them, then guess what? They're just not going to get done. And you know, fear sometimes eliminates excitement too. We stay in our comfort zones and we just refuse to try anything new. We're always asking, you know, well, what if I strike out? Um, you know, what if I lose money? Well, what if she doesn't like me? Fear also hurts our personalities. It makes us grouchy and critical and so uptight that, that we're sometimes difficult to live with, right? Or sometimes people try to pretend they're not afraid and they become overly aggressive and rude, Fear restricts our giftedness. When we're afraid, our minds forget the memorized words. Our hands shake and our voice trembles when we talk to certain people who we're intimidated by. And the fear of failure, probably most of all, displeases God. It shows that we don't really trust Him a whole lot and that we are self-centered. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7. It says, for God has not given us a spirit of fear and timidity, but of power, of love, and self-discipline. It is God's desire that we have a spirit of humbled confidence and holy boldness all at the same time that brings out the best in you and I. Well, as you dig through the Bible, I'm not sure that there's anyone in the Bible who struggled to overcome this fear of failure more so than a guy named Moses. 
In Exodus chapter 3, we're going to be there today, um, we learn that Moses had been taking care of sheep in Midian, and he seemed to be pretty content with his lifestyle there. You know, he, he didn't have the need to impress anyone, um, but then God challenges him. God challenges him to be the deliverer, right? You know the story. And Moses tried to get out of the assignment, mostly because of the fear of failure. So let's take a look this morning at this familiar story and learn some lessons about how to overcome the fear of failure, okay? So while he's tending the sheep there in Midian for his father-in-law, whose name was Jethro, if you're looking for any baby names, there's a good one, okay, Jethro, um, Moses sees a burning bush, and it was not being consumed by the fire. That's crazy. Try to imagine that. You know, you go in your backyard and a bush is on fire and it's not being burned up. That's a, that's a miracle, you know. And in Exodus 3, 6, God calls to Moses from that burning bush and says this. He says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And when Moses heard this, the Bible says that he covered his face because he was what? He was afraid to look at God. Wouldn't you be? That's an appropriate fear. That word awesome, that is awesome respect for a holy God. That, that's what we were referring to back in week one, the first part of the series, talking about fearing God. That, that's a healthy respect of God. Look, look at verse 7. And then the Lord told him, I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I've not forgotten about them. I've heard. I've heard their cries of distress because of their harsh slave drivers. Yes, I'm aware of their suffering. In verse 10, he tells Moses, now go. I want you to go. For I am sending you to Pharaoh. You must lead my people Israel out of Egypt. Imagine if God came to you in your backyard, burning bush, and says something like that. Would you not feel a little overwhelmed, you know? I mean, what an enormous, terrifying task that God had called Moses to do. No wonder he was afraid. I would have been scared to death, wouldn't you? So can I just pause here and ask you for a minute, what is it that God has been asking you to do that scares you? What is it? Is it to teach other people about him? Is it to use your gifts to meet needs here at church? You know, that we hear the word minister thrown around a lot. Ministry just means to meet needs. We're just meeting people's needs. Is it to cut back on your time spent at the office and spend more time raising your kids, which, by the way, is the parents' most important ministry? The most important thing you do, parents, will not, will not actually be something you do. It'll be somebody you raise. Is it to share with your classmates, students, or coworkers, adults, about your faith in Jesus, and that just frightens you? Besides, how do we even know when something is, is God's will or not? I mean, does it scare you to think that you could be you know, misinterpreting what God wants for your life? Maybe he, he doesn't speak to you audibly or he doesn't appear to you visibly as other people have claimed that he has to them. How do we know when something is from God and, and not just our sensitive conscience or our upset stomach? Okay, how do we know? I heard of a farm boy who looked up into the clouds and in the clouds he saw a strange formation that clearly spelled out the letters G P. 
see. And he knew that meant go preach Christ. And so he left the farm and he became a preacher, but he was terrible. He wasn't a very good one. He was awful. And an older woman who, uh, in the church who had just struggled week after week, sat through another boring sermon, she said, I'm just going to ask him about his calling. And when she asked him, he said, well, I saw the letter several years ago, GPC in the sky, and I knew that meant go preach Christ. And she said, are you positive? Because I think it meant go plow corn. Thanks, Veronica. Gosh, you people. God is probably not going to appear to you in a burning bush. Or he's probably not going to spell out your assignment in the clouds. So how do you know? How do we know if something is God's will or not? Well, there are a few questions that we can ask ourselves to determine if something is God's will or not. And the first one is this. Is the call you feel consistent with God's word? It's a good one to start with, right? Is what you feel inside, what you think God is asking you to do, is it consistent with God's word? Listen, he's not going, please hear me, he's not going to ask us to do something that is contrary to his word. God's never going to ask you to cheat on your spouse. He's never going to ask you to abuse somebody or to lie. It's just not going to happen. So is it consistent with God's word? The second thing, is that call confirmed by godly people who you know well and know you well? I mean, what kind of verification do you get when, you, when you, the people who are close to you from those kind of people, the people you know that are going to tell me the truth because they love me? What kind of verification are you getting? The third thing is this. Is your call repeated by the Holy Spirit? Is it? The Lord oftentimes confirmed his call to people like Samuel and Gideon and Peter when he was on the rooftop. And you know, it's best not to make a dramatic decision based on one-time impressions. And the, and the last way we can know is this. Is the call of God in an area of your giftedness and passion? God has gifted each person in this room with spiritual gifts. How do I know? Well, do other people tell you that's something you're good at? That's one way to know. Because, I mean, you're really good at whatever. Does it excite you? Does it motivate you? Does it energize you? Does it get you fired up? You know? Is that call in an area of your giftedness? And are you passionate about it? Well, listen, Moses was understandably afraid, so he made one excuse after another to avoid the assignment that God had given him. Look at verse 11. It says, but Moses protested to God. And he said, who am I? I mean, who am I to appear before Pharaoh? Who am I? Who, who am I to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt? Moses is saying here, listen, God, I don't have the credentials. I'm just a shepherd. I mean, I'm not a negotiator. I'm, I'm not a general. I, I can't lead two million people out into the wilderness. God, I'm not qualified. But you know what? The truth is that Moses was more qualified than anyone else. I mean, he, he had been raised in the desert where, where the people would be traveling, so he was very familiar with it. He had led sheep, and, and there are a lot of similarities between leading people and leading sheep. There's a lot of similarities, okay? But fear blinds us 
to our qualifications, and then we resist God's will for us saying, you know what, I don't have a graduate degree, or I'm too young, or I don't have any experience. So what does God do? He tells Moses, Moses, I'll be with you, and that's all you're going to need is my presence. Look at verse 13. But Moses protested, if I go to the people of Israel and tell them the God of your ancestors has sent me to you, they're going to ask me, what's his name? Then what should I tell them? Moses is saying, God, these Hebrews, they don't know you very well. And they're focused on their, their misery. And when I say God sent me, they're going to ask me what God I'm talking about. Verse 14. God replied to Moses, I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. <laughs> Can you imagine being in Moses' shoes hearing that? Right? I mean, Moses has got to be thinking, what? I am what? I'm who I am. What? I mean, they're going to be really impressed with that, Lord. Okay? I am who I am. You know? But God goes on to elaborate in verse 16. He says, now go and call together all the elders of Israel and tell them, Yahweh, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he's appeared to me. I've seen him. He told me, I have been watching closely, and I see how the Egyptians are treating you. I have promised to rescue you, that they need a deliver, and here it is, from, from your oppression in Egypt. I will lead you to a land flowing with milk and honey, the land where the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites now live. The elders of Israel will accept your message. And then guess what Moses does? He offers another excuse. And he says, well, you know, even if they do listen, Pharaoh's not going to. I mean, I don't have any leverage with the king. Pharaoh will laugh. And he'll say, your God said to deliver the slaves? Well, my God said to keep them here. So, bam, take that, Moses, right? God tells Moses, he says, Moses, hey, take that rod that's in your hand and throw it down. And when he did, guess what happened? You've, heard, you've read the story, right? It becomes a snake. And then he tells Moses to put his hand inside of his vest. And when he removed it and brought it back out, it was white with leprosy, right? And, of course, he put it back in and it was normal. But in Exodus 4, verse 9, he said, And if they don't believe you or listen to you, even after these two signs, then take some water from the Nile River and pour it on the dry ground. When you do, the water from the Nile will turn to blood on the ground. But Moses pleaded with the Lord, Oh, Lord, I'm not very good with words. I never have been, and I'm not, I'm not now. Even though you have spoken to me, Lord, I get tongue-tied, and, and my words get all tangled up. He says, Lord, I'm, I'm not a good speaker. You need someone who's, who's good in front of people. You know what, I think back in when I was in college, that was the very reason I almost didn't become a teacher. I put off a public speaking class that was required until my fifth year, first semester, right before I did my student teaching, because I hated getting in front of people in school. I got very nervous, and to be honest, I still don't particularly enjoy it, especially when you know, I don't feel comfortable or I haven't spent enough time preparing my thoughts on what I want to say. I really have to be prayed up you know, when I teach for God to have his hand on me. And so I understand what Moses is complaining about here, trying to say. He's scared. And he's thinking, you know, well, what if I stutter? Or what if the, the words don't come out right? And so 
God asked Moses, who made your mouth? And he tells him, since I'm the one who made your mouth, and if I want you to speak, don't you think I can help you do it, Moses? And he tells Moses to go, and that he would help him to speak. And Moses runs out of excuses, and he still tries to get out of it. Look at verse 13. But Moses pleaded again. You don't have any excuse. He just says, Lord, please send anyone else. Please, I'm begging you, right? You kind of get the impression here that Moses didn't want to do this. Or was it just me? This assignment scared him to death. It's way out of his comfort zone. But God would not let him off the hook. Why not? Why wouldn't God say, okay, you're good. Enough, enough is enough, right? He wouldn't let him off the hook um, because it wasn't about Moses. This was about two million slaves who were suffering and doing God's will. And God was wanting him to be the deliverer. Verse 14, the first part says, what happens is Moses keeps complaining and the Lord becomes angry. It said, the Lord, then the Lord became angry with Moses. And in verse 17, God tells him to take his shepherd's staff and use it to perform the miraculous signs that he'd shown him. And then God goes on and says uh, and tells him that I'm going to send your brother Aaron with you because he is a good speaker and he's sending him as kind of like his press secretary, you know, since he feels that he needs that. But he's telling Moses, you go and obey. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to send Aaron with you to take care of all this, you know, fears you have and insecurity, but you do what I say. Go and obey. And Moses says, yes, sir. And he went trembling Every step of the way. Guys, sometimes when God asks you to do something, you may have to go trembling. But go and obey. Just do what God says to do. And he will bless you for it. Now we think that Moses went with the power of God. You know, since he went with the power of God. That he would just experience immediate success, right? I obeyed, I went, so where's the success? You know, the Hebrew slaves would, would say something like, thank God you're here, Moses. You know, we're behind you 100%. And, and then that Pharaoh would see the miracles, and he would just let them go. And two months later, they'd be in the promised land. But that's not what happens. For those of you who have read the story, right? That's not what happens at all. Moses, he experiences one disastrous setback after another. I mean, these Israelites, talking about sheep related, they were terrible followers. Pharaoh, he laughed at the idea of releasing the slaves. His court magicians copied the very same miracles that Moses did. And only after God sent ten horrible plagues did Pharaoh reluctantly and temporarily release the slaves. And then, you guys have read the story, there's that entrapment by the Red Sea, the threat of starvation in the wilderness, the, the rebellion against Moses' leadership, cowardness as they reached the promised land. And for 40 years, Moses experienced one embarrassing setback after another. And everybody over 20 years of age when they left Egypt, with the exception of two men, died in the wilderness. And to top it off, Moses himself didn't even get to enter into the promised land. He, he went up onto a mountain, um, looked at it from a distance, and then died. You know? I mean, if, if the Palestine press wrote an obituary for Moses, it would have read this. 
Controversial leader dies without accomplishing mission. That's what it would have said. And the sub headline would have read, Followers of Moses have mixed feelings on his leadership since most never experienced the promise. And over in the corner, there would be this young couple crying because their parents were struck dead in the wilderness because they criticized Moses and they never realized their dream. Moses' task was frightening and it wasn't very fulfilling at times. So in our time remaining, I just want to share with you four lessons from Moses' experience about how to overcome the fear of failure, okay? And we'll go through these pretty quickly. But the first one is this. Understand that fear is normal, and it can be a positive. Fear is normal, and it can be a positive. It was only natural for Moses to be afraid. I mean, he was just being realistic. There was real danger and death waiting in the wilderness, And guys, we need to understand that fear is normal and sometimes appropriate. But listen, God can use it for good. If we're afraid to fail, you know, that can motivate us to ask for help. It can motivate us to have a humble spirit. It can motivate us to pray, to prepare. Sometimes, listen, sometimes overconfidence is our worst enemy. It is. You know, it's been said that the most dangerous pilot is someone who has between 100 and 200 hours of flying experience because they become overconfident and careless. Paul Harvey said one time about the people who introduced him to speak, he said if they were nervous, they did a much better job than those who were overconfident. Fear is normal and can be a positive motivator. The second thing is this. Confront your fear. Face it. Confront it. Don't let your fear keep you from taking risks. When you're afraid of God's plan, don't run from it. Face it. Obey God's will, just like Moses eventually did. And listen, months later, you will feel the pleasure of God. And you will hear that gentle whisper, Well done, good and faithful servant. That's what we want to hear. Third thing is this. Expect failure. Just expect it. It's an inevitable part of success. Guys, you can be walking in the will of God just like Moses and still have setbacks. Your your first investment may not produce a gain. Your child may rebel. Your new bride may run back home to mama. You, You may quit your job to stay at home with the kids, and then your husband ends up losing his job. But failure doesn't always mean, listen, that we're outside of God's will. Failure isn't final. Fear can be the greatest teacher in the world. If we're not afraid enough to plan, to prepare, and to pray, then we probably shouldn't be doing whatever it is we're attempting to do. This principle is one thing I love about baseball. You know, a baseball player can fail 70% of the time and still get into the Hall of Fame. It's crazy, right? I mean, he can miss the first two pitches and on the third one hit a home run and he's a huge success. Failing doesn't mean we're a failure. It just means we've not succeeded yet. Yet, that's it. Failure doesn't mean that we've accomplished nothing. It does mean that we have learned something. 
Failure doesn't mean we've been a fool. It does mean we've had enough faith to experiment. Failure doesn't mean we should give up. It does mean that we've got to try harder. Failure, it doesn't mean that we'll never make it. It just means that we need more patience. So guys, let me encourage you. Don't panic. Don't panic if your growth chart has some downward trends on it. Because the guy we're talking about today, Moses, his did too. His did too. The fourth thing is this. Redefine success in terms of doing God's will instead of meeting your own goals. God's ways are not our ways, the Bible says. By the world standards, Moses' life looked like an absolute failure. But by God's standards, God's point of view, Moses was a great success. Because why? Because he walked in obedience and did what God said, finally. And the New Testament repeats that in Hebrews 11 and verse 24 when it says this. It was by faith that Moses, when he grew up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Now, he, he chose to share the oppression of God's people instead of enjoying the fleeting pleasures of sin. He thought it was better to suffer for the sake of Christ than to own the treasures of Egypt. For he was looking ahead to his great reward. And it was by faith that Moses left the land of Egypt, not fearing the king's anger, he kept right on going because he kept his eyes on the one who is invisible. Guys, Moses' fears were based on his own standards. Moses' success was based on God's standards. In his book, Your God is Too Safe, Mark Buchanan talks about the difference between expectation and expectancy. And he says our lives should be lived an expectancy, not expectation, because that leaves us to dictate the terms. For, for example, if a teacher responds to their call to teach by expecting that the students are, are going to love them all the time and pay attention to them you know, every second of the day, to everything they say, they might conclude that they failed. But if they go in sowing seeds expectantly waiting to see what God's going to do, you can keep an even kill even when you don't see the results right away. Mel Gibson once said uh, years ago he felt a call from God to make a movie back in 2004 depicting the last 12 hours of Jesus' life. And he said he wanted to show in a very graphic way that Jesus was led like a, like a sheep to the slaughter for our sins. Now, that's a pretty scary assignment if God was giving you that one, right? Risking failure, rejection, loss of money, worldly credibility in his case. But what was impressive was hearing Mel Gibson's courage and confidence. He boldly admitted that before making The Passion of the Christ, that his life was falling apart. When the world thought he was the most successful is when his life was the most empty. Addicted to drugs and alcohol and even thoughts of suicide, he said. He was spiritually bankrupt. But at his lowest point, he turned to God for help. And he said that his pain was a precursor to change when God gave him the assignment to depict the life of Jesus in a movie. And Dr. Sawyer asked him how much money he could lose. And he said, you know what? It doesn't matter. 
It doesn't matter. This is what God's called me to do. In one interview, he was asked why he chose Caviezel to play the part of Jesus. And he said, well, when I was interviewing him, I realized in the middle of the interview that his initials were J.C. and he was 33 years old. And so that kind of made it easy on me. He said, duh, you know. When asked about his critics, he said, oh, they're not criticizing me. They're criticizing the Gospels. Now, would anybody deny that God used this guy who had failed spiritually to make a dramatic impact on our nation over the past 17 years through the movie, The Passion of the Christ? Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, Each time, he said, My grace is all you need. My power works best in your weakness. So now I'm, I'm glad to boast about my weaknesses. Why? So that the power of Christ can work through me. Guys, in order to do that, we have to define success the way God defines it. Maybe your life is somewhat like Mel Gibson's was. You know, the, the world thinks you've got it made, that you've got it all together. But down deep, you're empty inside. There's a void. And there's been one spiritual failure after another in your life. And all that the world has offered you, it hasn't filled that void. It hasn't filled that emptiness in your life. So as we close, I just pray today. I pray today would be the day that you let God redefine your failure and turn your life into a success by allowing him to be the Lord. Not just Savior, but the Lord, the boss of your life. Would you do that today as we stand and sing? Let me pray for us. Father, I know that there's people here that are, that are just scared to fail. So would you help all of us in the room to redefine what that looks like? Would you just help us uh, not to follow Moses' example with the excuses, but to follow his example in just going and obeying? Father, I pray for those in the room who are scared to surrender. They want you to be their Savior, but they're not so sure they want you to be their Lord. God, would you just step on their pride this morning? Would you just humble us enough to know that your way is best, to quit trying it our own way? Father, we need you to save us from our sins and to be the boss of our lives. Just help us to surrender this morning. It's your son Jesus' name that we pray.